I just love how how food lends itself to storytelling. You know, it 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 just provides an angle that makes it very relatable. Dirty Linen is always aiming to give diverse voices in the food world a podcast platform. Uh, if there's any arena in life which should be always celebrating diversity, it is food. Uh, and this week as we celebrate new voices in food um, and the diversity in food media collective, we have the great pleasure of welcoming to Dirty Linen today Anna Kaziva. Anna, welcome. Thank you, Danny. Hi. It's lovely to have you on the show. And um, I will also refer listeners to your chat with Anthony Huckstep on my brother podcast, Deep in the Weeds, um, where we got to know you and your story a little bit. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a really lovely chat. Thanks for joining the network again. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, so in that chat, I guess it was a few months back and Huck spoke to you about the Soviet diet cookbook, which you've written and about the circumstances in which you moved to Australia. But for people who haven't had the pleasure of listening to that show, do you want to give us a quick backstory? Sure. So um, up until February 24th or, you know, early March this year, I was a Moscow-based food writer, which my website still says, actually, I must correct that. <laughs> and um I'd written a book with my grandmother's stories uh, about the iconic Soviet cookbook called The Book of Tasty and Healthy Food. I sort of um, cooked over 100 recipes from that book and chatted to my grandmother who had lived through the Soviet Union uh, to record her recollections and her perspective on the book and on the recipes and on life in the Soviet Union. So that was quite a fascinating journey. Um, and um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, you know, my life as I knew it changed. Um, my country as I knew it um, completely changed. I, uh, you know, following sort of some protesting and some words that I said um, on uh, ABC actually, <laughs> in Australia, but also on social media, I felt unsafe to stay in Russia. So I left in a hurry. You know, we packed up our bags, my husband, son and I, um, just in 24 hours and got to Istanbul, spent three weeks in Istanbul waiting for my Australian visa to come through. And so I've been in Sydney since the 26th of March now. Uh, and I spoke to Huck, it must have been in September, I guess, uh, or maybe even earlier, must have been before I even sort of started working and and started to feel somewhat settled. So I feel much more settled now, and it's much better in general. <laughs> I feel like, you no, know, I kind of belong now in Sydney, which is nice. And explain your connection to Australia, Anna, because it's not your first time here. Yeah, yeah, right. So so the reason I, I got to Australia is because my husband is Australian and I actually had permanent residency while living in Moscow, which I never thought I'd actually really use. Um, 
but I still needed a visa to get in anyway. Um, and I had been to Australia many times before. I even lived here briefly just for a few months when I was 21, 15 years ago. So I was somewhat familiar with Australia and with Sydney, even though I'd never properly lived here. I'd never worked here. And I certainly had no plans of moving anywhere outside of Moscow and, you know, not not to Sydney. So I did have a connection, but it was also a new place at the same time, if you know what I mean. Mm, yeah. And I, I think, you know, in Australia, we are somewhat um, familiar with the idea of refugees from Ukraine as a result of the war, but that you would have to leave Russia so quickly, I think is, a, a, you know, it's a, a it's yeah, it's it's another concept to, for us to get our heads around. Can you explain exactly what you felt, why you felt your life was in peril? Yeah, so you're right. There are lots of uh, Russians leaving Russia. There were there was a big wave, sort of in early March, which is when we left, um, and uh, another big wave in September, at the end of September, early October, when the drafting was announced, when mostly men started fleeing and you might have seen footage of it of the border crossings between Russia and Georgia and Russia and Kazakhstan. So basically what happened is, you know, when uh, the war started, they started tightening the vaults in, in Russia, of course, as well. And they introduced new laws that said that if you support Ukraine in any way, you know, you can get up to 15 years in jail. If you, if you, uh, or maybe 20 years, I, I might be confused now. Or if you shared anything that they regard as fake news, which is basically sharing what is happening in Ukraine, the war, um, you're spreading fake news and you can get up to 15 years in jail. And it just went from being somewhat not great before the war, which of course it wasn't great because Putin was in power already, but we kind of knew the rules uh, and it didn't feel completely terrible. It went from that to just feeling like we were living in the Soviet Union, you know, it felt terrible, you know, just it was a combination of watching what was happening in Ukraine in utter disbelief and shock and the feeling of, you know, what can I do? You know, because it's sort of, it felt like, oh, it's my fault, you know, uh, what can I do? But also feeling the fear of prosecution if you, if, you, if you do anything. And I went to the protest on the first day of the war, the day it started, and, and, that, and gave that interview afterwards. And, uh, you know, I said something that was quite dangerous for me to say um, because I was in shock from what was happening. And my husband said, you've got a target on your forehead, you know, we need to get out. And at first I was like, you know, it's okay, it's okay, you know, we can stay a bit longer. But then when they said, well, we might introduce martial law or what they said was we're not introducing martial law. And I, I read it as, oh, my God, they're definitely introducing martial law, which would mean they could close the borders, they could do whatever they want. And I just, I just got so scared. You know, I just felt like if I don't get out now, I might go to jail. And I also didn't know how long we were leaving for. Now I was saying goodbye to my mom and we're like, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll be able to come back in a couple of months time. It was completely unclear. And, you know, now we're in Sydney and 
yeah, things haven't improved <laughs> at all. Um, you know, no one, I, I couldn't foresee the war going on for as long as it has. Um, I don't know that anyone has, uh, you know, thought it would go on for as long as it has. And it's just, now I don't know when I'll go back. I'm sort of completely unclear about it. Yeah, it's, yeah, what a, yeah, just so many, it's just such a huge situation in in your life and I think you know we we hear the news of the war and it 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 can be quite abstract I mean I think some of the we hear that you know it's it's the cause of gas prices going up or it's the it's why cooking oil is more expensive or it's why there are shortages of wheat in other parts of the world it's but it does feel quite distant I mean, how do you process it? It's very immediate for you. You, you know, it's really impacted your life so directly and in, in such a huge way. Uh, how how do you sort of make sense of of those, the way that Australians are connected but also disconnected from what you've experienced? Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, part. I mean, on one hand, Australians don't have an anti-Russian sentiment, which is nice for me it makes my life easy on a daily basis because there are countries in which you know um people are less happy to see any russians at all because because there are a lot of russians who who support the war and you know i guess it's understandable um but on the other hand it is strange that it is so far away from here and for a lot of people it's just this distant thing that doesn't impact their lives um, whereas for me, it's absolutely crucial. And, you know, there are days when I don't really think about it and I just go to work and I take my kid to preschool and I cook dinner and I do all of that, you know, cause I've got a, a busy life, but I also, there's just this constant shadow over me, you know, I'm, and I, and I do read the news and, and when, you know, the, the shelling is particularly bad it just puts me in this sort of slow motion mode, you know, like getting to work and thinking about it and thinking about it. And, you know, then I get distracted by work because, because, you know, uh, nobody's as impacted by it as I am among my Australian acquaintances, you know, my, my friends and colleagues, because it's not a part of their lives. It's fair enough. Um, But then I do have Russian friends as well here and when we get together, we talk about it a lot. And I feel like I can really talk then, you know, I can talk to someone who is as upset by it as I am. And, you know, there's almost no degree of my life improving that will make me feel okay while the war is still going on. You know, because my life is actually fine now. Like I've got work, I've got friends, my son's in preschool, he's going to school soon. I feel like I'm fine, you know, I don't feel as completely lost and sort of torn into pieces as I did when I first arrived. But the war is still a major part of of my um, existence, you know, like my stepfather is in Ukraine, for example. He is in Kherson, which was recently returned to Ukraine, you know, they fought for it, they got it back, but there's no electricity, there's no water. And that's why I'm fundraising to help Kherson, because at least I know 
I know at least I can do a little something, you know, because I have never appreciated until this year what it is to have a roof over your head, have enough food, not have to worry about how you're going to pay, cover the basics of your life. Um, that is actually huge. If you have that, you're ahead of so many people in the world. You, you really are fine. And that, I mean, that realization has, has been huge for me. Mm. I mean, yeah, perspective is, I guess it's a cliche, but it is, it is a gift, but it, yeah, it's, it, it also, I suppose, is a responsibility. Um, yeah. Um, so, Anna, what are you actually doing for work in Australia? Um, so I, I work for a, a Jewish nonprofit called Shalom as a program manager slash event curator. We just put on a Jewish food and farm festival, which was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm also starting soon at SBS Russian um, as a producer, as a casual producer. So I'll have two jobs. And I've been fortunate enough to write a couple of pieces for SBS Food, which is great. And hoping, and obviously the book, New Voices on Food, has been a great thing to take part in. Yeah. Well, let's talk about New Voices on Food because I suppose that's, that's our focus. Uh I love your piece. I've had the privilege of reading it. Can you tell us, don't give us any spoilers, but <laughs> tell us about it. Um, yeah, so I, I saw Lee Tran Lam's post about you know, rising on, on food and the, the focus was past, present and future. And I started sort of thinking about my connection to Australia, which now sort of goes back about, well, at least 15 years, 15 years since I first came to live here briefly. But even before that, like when I met my husband and when I first tried Vegemite, because my husband is um, a big fan of Vegemite. He doesn't like to go without it for too long, wherever we live. You know, I mean, we've lived in Moscow and Georgia. <laughs> and um, I realized that there is this connection, you know, that I can really tell my life story, or at least the last 15 years, kind of through Vegemite, <laughs> you know, of, of where we lived, or, or of whether we had access to it or not, of my relationship with Australia and, and with Vegemite itself as well. I mean, with Vegemite, it's not so complex. At first, I didn't like it, and I liked it, no. Um, but also about my grandmother. The common journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, my grandmother loved it. You know, and she was such a big part of my life. And uh, it was sort of a connecting moment between her and my husband, you know, because he's Australian, you know, she's Russian Jewish. And, um, you know, my husband speaks Russian, but not really to an extent where he can have like a, a proper conversation with her about life. But they had this moment of like they both loved Vegemite and he was so happy that she liked it. She took an instant liking to it actually, unlike me. And we'd always bring it back for her. And yeah, I just love how how food lends itself to storytelling. You know, it 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 just provides an angle that makes it very relatable. And it allows you to tell to tell the story sort of 
in in its complexity, but not all of it. You know, the sides of it that are really interesting and that that make it a good read. Yeah, that's so interesting. It is a lovely piece. Um, I suppose, yeah, food is both can also can both be a shorthand for connection, as you talk, as you speak about with your husband and, and your grandmother. But then it can also be such an expansive site of of conversation and discovery. It it can do so many different jobs. Um, and yeah, I love the sort of. I guess there's an economy in using Vegemite. It's you don't need much Vegemite, you know, on your toast, and you don't need much Vegemite in a story, but it uh, certainly does the job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thin layer on toast and in the story. I like that. What do you, you know, from your perspective, what does the Australian food media world look and feel like? Well, I've been very fortunate to sort of meet. Lee Tran Lam, well, not in person, but to get to know her work and and her approach, which is obviously very diverse. And then, you know, with SBS Food as well, they also have such a diverse um, range of writers and, and cultures and stuff represented, which, which is amazing. I mean, I guess in mainstream media, there's a lot of Asian food, or you know, local sort of Australian food, not not so much Eastern European. In general, I guess there's not a lot of Eastern European stuff around. But then I hear that there are some Eastern European desserts that are becoming more or less popular, like the honey cake medavik. So, and buckwheat is becoming a bigger thing here, which is nice. Uh, it's very much a staple you know, for Russia, or I think much much of Eastern Europe. I certainly grew up having it every morning with uh, with milk and sugar. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it is it is quite diverse, but it it is also mostly not what I'm familiar with. Yeah, that's really interesting because yeah, I suppose buckwheat has come in as you know like a health food, quote unquote, superfood, a bit of a sprinkle. Whereas, how would you have it from, for breakfast? Is it more like a porridge? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I would have, and I make it for my son as well most mornings, just a bowl full of buckwheat with some milk, a fair bit of milk actually, kind of like cereal. And, you know, I slice up some bananas on top for my son, well, when he agrees to have them, or a bit of honey, and or I would have sugar growing up. And then also in Russia you can have it as a side to anything really to meat fish you know just on it just plain but also cooked with mushrooms onions in every kind of way really what about fermentation because i think fermentation is such a huge conversation in australia right now but i would say not so much from the european side where there is i mean and if you think about russian food there is there are so many fermented preparations but I think in Australia we think about it perhaps we start thinking about it more from the Asian point of view and Asian Asian ferments mm. yeah you're right I forgot about fermentation yes well I mean when I first noticed it even you know living back in Moscow noticed it in the English-speaking world you know the food world like oh fermented this fermented that you know sour cabbage you know kind of had a giggle because 
I grew up with it. It's such a big part of the culture. For us, you know, my grandmother always made sour cabbage, you know, always made pickled cucumbers, gherkins, you know, always, it was just always a part of our lives. And, and to see it as this sort of cool hip thing is kind of funny uh, because it's so not a cool hip thing, a thing where I come from. <laughs> it's a grandma thing. It's a grandma thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And mind you, there's a lot of love and longing for grandma's food, um, where I come from at least. Uh, but it, but that is interesting. Yeah. And it, it also is sort of a connecting thing. Like I was showing someone, um, the Jewish food society did a story on sort of my family, my grandmother's food. And I showed a friend this vinaigrette salad, which is boiled uh, or roast potatoes, uh, beetroot, sauerkraut, apple, and vinaigrette dressing. And then, you know, there are different iterations. You can add peas or not. You can add something else. But those are sort of the basic things. And some rye bread. And there were rissoles. And and he was like, oh, wow, that looks amazing. You know, just a young Australian guy. That looks amazing. I would totally eat that. And I realized, oh, yeah, I guess it looks kind of cool from a more than Australian perspective. You know, for me, it's just home food. And vinaigrette, the salad, I mean, I made it once in Australia for my in-laws and they loved it. And I went, oh, yeah, it is actually really cool. Like the apples and the and the sauerkraut with the beetroot and potatoes and the vinaigrette dressing. It is really nice. Uh, I kind of saw it from a different perspective, you know, from the perspective of someone who didn't grow up with it and who, who is into sauerkraut and things like that. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's so interesting to have this new light shone upon something that is just so basic and normal for you. But I guess, yeah, I mean, often that is an immigration story, isn't it? it, it, it partly, you know, you have to explain and explain and explain like what it is. Yeah, you have to introduce people to things that you perhaps haven't ever had to um, unpick before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is a funny thing, like, um, you know, like the aladushki, for example, which are these sort of pikelets that you can make with anything. Like if you've got leftover dairy of any kind, and it doesn't really matter how old it is, it can be pretty old, uh, it all goes into aladushki. And it's this zero-waste approach, which is so sort of trending now. It's so cool. And... You know, for a good reason, because it's a very good thing to do. But that's how, for my grandmother, that was her life. For my mom, it was just zero waste was just how they lived. You know, it wasn't a cool thing. It wasn't something they were trying to do. It was something they did out of necessity, but got really good at it, you know, um, but really inventive. And there are lots of things that my grandmother used to make, like a zipikanka, for instance, which is like this bake that, you use any leftover grains or pasta or anything like that with just some egg on the top and a bit of breadcrumbs, you know, roasted. And it's not a terribly exciting food, but it's a way of using up whatever you have. And with some nice sauce and with some nice sauerkraut on the side, it's actually pretty lovely. Um, yeah, and again, you know, just this approach of not wasting anything is so familiar to me from childhood, but is now cool 
in Australia as well. Yeah, well, it should be very cool and very, yeah, very much just the way we think about eating. Um, Anna, is there anything that you really miss that you just can't get here? Um, to be honest, ingredient-wise, I can get most things here. I mean, some of them are quite far, like at Russian shops, you know, if it's good rye bread or, or good herring or, you know, some sweets and things like that I, I you know they are accessible here but quite far from where i live what i miss and this will sound silly but what i miss is the ability to just order food on my phone and have it delivered in 20 minutes you know groceries or have a grocery store right next to my place and have the chance have the ability to go every day or every other day and just buy a little bit as I need it, because that's how Moscow operates. You, there are shops everywhere. And also, there are, like online shopping is so good. You literally order something and it's there within 20 minutes. And you don't have to think about, oh, I need to get in the car, which I don't have a full license yet. And I live far from the shops. So I had to learn to shop once a week, you know, which is a completely foreign co- concept to me. And like last weekend, we didn't have time to shop. <laughs> so, you know, I've been using up whatever we've got in the fridge and the pantry and the freezer to make meals this week because I can't get to the shops by myself. So that's a different concept. And it's, it is, it's interesting, you know, and it's totally possible to learn and adjust to the new way of shopping. But I do miss the ease with which I shopped in Moscow. That's so interesting because I think a lot of people would perhaps, you know, because they're so used to shopping weekly, for example, they would flip it and they would think, oh, my God, what a hassle to have to think about shopping every day. Um, But I guess, you know, this whole, you know, this enormous refrigerator and this enormous pantry and these, you know, people who have extra cupboards or a garage where they can put, you know, um, trays of tin tomatoes or whatever it is, um, that whole idea of, of bulk and stocking up is is so foreign in so many places and of course you know it's pretty new really in at least in terms of refrigerated goods i mean so many people live yeah without refrigeration it's a pretty new thing really so it's yeah it's so it's so interesting um yeah yeah it's i love that i think <laughs> i think we we i think we definitely waste more food the more we've got yeah i mean i feel like when I buy little amounts, I don't waste as much. But I don't know. At the same time, I feel like you know the best way not to waste food, like you're definitely not going to waste food if you don't have much money and you have a small budget for groceries, um, which is my, the case for me now, you know. Um, so you, you are a lot more creative and you think, more about okay i'm going to use this i'm going to use that and i mean you know for me like the generations before me lived that way always and you know when i first you know when we first got even before we started working you know while we were still looking for work i was thinking oh my god you know we have no money how am i gonna cook you know it's so depressing i'll have to like really think of uh what i can buy you know it's like i'll have to like not I have a a strict budget with groceries. And I thought that's so depressing. And then I went, wait a minute. My mom lived like this. My grandmother lived like this. 
and they still cook delicious food. You know, it's okay. It's a challenge. You can think about what to buy to make it more cost efficient. And it's actually, there's actually nothing wrong with it. It's fine. And that was, it was good for me to remember where I come from and to think, okay, actually, you know what? It's all right. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. You don't have to have expensive ingredients to cook delicious food. Yeah. So again, with perspective, it is such a such an important tool. Um, and we, if we return to the the um, the time travel perspective of New Voices on Food Volume Two, I mean, I can imagine that the future is very hard for you to sort of hold and see before you. But uh, what what do you see? Where do you see yourself um, stepping to over the next little while? Um, yeah, it's the future has been a, an interesting one because when we left, all I could think about was returning back to Moscow, and and now I'm thinking, well, we'll definitely stay in Australia for a few years, and who knows how long that will be, you know? Because in four or five years' time, my son will be nine or ten, and he might not want to go back. You know, he'll have a life here and and it's honestly it's sort of a little bit um, anxiety inducing um, to think about the future but um, I just hope I just hope that mainly that the war finishes and that Russia is able to get on some sort of a path of healing um, and admitting what it's done, which will take a long time. But, um, yeah, I don't know. To be honest, I just currently, I mean, this year has been about one one leg in front of the other. And, you know, when I was in Moscow, it was literally taking it an hour at a time of, of trying to figure out what's happening next. And now I think it's, well, I can see... I guess a year ahead where I'm, you know, we're here and I'm working and hopefully I'm writing more and my son's at school and, you know, we're sort of getting more established in Sydney and maybe a couple of years, but then it, it is hard to know what what's ahead of us. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your perspective today and your contribution to New Voices on Food. Um, Anna, thank you so much for having a chat with us today on Dirty Linen. It's just been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you so much for covering New Voices on Food and for having me. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.